growing up in low poverty situations. And then you also have to remember that we're dealing with the majority of people, with the exception of few, are from low income situations. And you're socially programmed to be me against you at all times. Right. And you can kind of see that spill over when you watch the landscape of hip hop and hip hop hustle podcast, man. You heard it here first. He's not playing. No, Aaron's not playing. No fucking game. You got your ear to the streets, man. Much love to all the people down under. And make sure y'all follow the Hip Hop Hustle podcast, man, because they're giving y'all nothing but the real shit. But yeah, man, appreciate the intro, bro. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's kick it off. Shout out to the whole Hip Hop Hustle podcast. What's up with it? It's official. For the first time ever, we have Hip Hop Hustle podcast merch. From hoodies to T-shirts to hats and even slides, Go to thehiphophustlepodcast.com to get yours. All right. There we go. Welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle Podcast. I'm extremely excited about my next guest, the one and only, the infamous Amadeus, uh, veteran in hip hop. Literally, man, you do it all. Artist, producer, you make films, videographer, literally. You, you, I, when I was looking at all your accomplishments, I was like, I don't understand how this guy manages it all with all the time. You're on the radio as well. Syria, was it uh, Shade 45? You're on the radio. Um, you've got EPs, uh, Infamous Life, and The Soul that came out this year. You've got singles, Stay Out of My Way. Literally, it's like, for people who are listening, it's you're setting an example of what can be accomplished in terms of how many different fields you can be successful at. Thank you. And, you know, I, I learned early on um, when I had made a decision that maybe being an MC wasn't going to be my way in. You know, I kind of looked in the room around me and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm around a bunch of guys that only know how to do one thing and that's rap. Nobody understands this concept. No one understands film. No one understands radio. No one understands that this is a business so I had kind of made the decision that if I was going to be successful, I would kind of need to be the person to do it. And, you know, here we are. And I'm, I'm grateful that I've been able to accomplish so much. And even with me accomplishing all these different things that you just spoke about, people still want to hear me create music at the same time, right? So um, I'm just blessed to, to be able to be in that position. That's an interesting mindset that you realized that your way was not through necessarily being an MC. Uh, how old were you? What was that realization? Like, where were you at in your career thus far? So I was um, in between um, a, a single song deal that I had with Universal Music Group and, and Def Jam trying to acquire my album, uh, Any Day Now, the first Any Day Now. Um, and, you know, music was changing. Uh, Auto-tune was introduced. You know, and, and I, I think people were infatuated with auto-tune in the beginning, it's, specifically with T-Pain, because you couldn't really tell if he could sing or not. But, you know, once I saw someone like Lil Wayne do it, that you know for a fact that he's not vocally talented as a singer, and then Kanye, and it, it kind of just took over the landscape, I, I, I realized that maybe... Um, terrestrial radio and other avenues of record labels will be transitioning from traditional lyrics to more of a melodic way of consuming music. So, you know, I said, you know what, maybe, maybe by default, just because of the year I was born, let's say, right? If I was born 10 years earlier, then maybe rap could have been a path for me. But at that point, um, I, I just said to myself, you know what? I'm going to need to do something if I plan on being relevant like today in 2023. It's going to, I'm going to need to figure out something. And I quickly realized that, you know, although we idolize rappers, although we look at rappers as the face of the brands, you know, the people behind them are the ones that push the buttons. The people behind them are the ones with multiple acres of land. And I need to figure out a way where I can get into that space. But more importantly, put myself in a space where if I wanted to create music, at leisure, I wouldn't be able to do that without going through the obstacles of an independent artist. Um, so that, that was kind of my decision. And I had to lay out a plan where it's like, okay, these are the things that I'm missing. 
let me just start checking one thing off at a time. And what was the first thing you decided to check off? Well, well, I grew up in an area where we didn't know anybody. There was no way in to the industry. It's a way to um, meet people. And obviously, sex sells. It always has since the beginning of time. So uh, me and my wife, we decided to create a modeling agency called the Get Adam Girls. Um, so, And, you know, that was my way. I, I had a video director who lived in my neighborhood, Mills Miller. He had just shot this uh, fabulous video. I forgot the name. Uh, so, you know, I hit him up. I'm like, listen, I got girls for your videos. Um, if you need some girls, he's like, yeah, come through. And then from there, I, I, we started meeting different directors. And that just cascaded into like a whole movement where we had like 23 girls under us as models. And we were doing, you know, videos for 50 Cent and Fabulous and, you know, um, 2 Chains and, you know, this guy and that guy. And that was kind of my introduction into the music industry which naturally seg segued into film and into um, I Get Out of Magazine, which was kind of like people's first introduction to me as an entrepreneur, um, as opposed to being a lyricist. But again, I, I needed a way in, right? A lot of guys get in by default. A lot of people get in by, you know, you know this person, your mom knows this person. We recently figured out that Travis Scott, right? Uh, dad taught DJ Premier how to play drums, right? So when Travis Scott goes into a meeting with Kanye West, there's still that phone call that happens. Still a phone call. Like Premier calls, you know, Kanye, listen, this is my, you know, my my homeboy's son, you know, look out. It's, it, it's always kind of that way when it comes to hip hop. So, you know, I, I just, I needed to figure out the workaround and, and, mod, and the models were the beginning of what you see now. Well, I think it's, it just shows that, like, if you really want it bad enough, you just got to find where the demand is, where the gap in the market is. Because, like, you ended up making videos for all the legendary artists. I mean, the list, like, go on. You said, you know, 50 Cent, but Prodigy uh, of Mob yeah. Deep. You have um, Jazzo, Uncle Murder, Styles P, Jada Kiss. The list literally just keeps going on and on and on. So it's like... You lit. It, it's not like you're just talking about it, saying, "Hey, this is what I did." It literally kicked it all off. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I often find, and I try to relate this to artists, where and just people in general that are trying to accomplish something. Like we, we tend to limit ourselves by saying that we can't. Right? You know, we can't do this. We can't do that. Whether it's social programming or whatever the reason is. Um, you know, with me, I've always seen the world in a different place and I never seen any limitations, no matter what my upbringing was or financial status as a child or whatever it is. Right. Whatever I want to accomplish, like I can accomplish. But the question is, who's going to put the work to do it? Right. Who, who is actually going to go and, and do it? If I, if I want to learn how to be a, a videographer, I can learn to do that. If I want to learn how to be a producer, I can learn to do that. If I want to learn to be a DJ, I can learn. Like I'm not a DJ by trade. So none, none of these things that, that people have seen me do um, throughout my career, except being an MC. Being an MC, that would be my trade, right? But these are just acquired talents that I've learned throughout the years by just not making excuses. You know, we got to stop making excuses. If you want to go do something, get your ass off the fucking couch and go do it, period. Um, and, you know, I've just been blessed, like, as you said, to work with so many different people. You know, Prodigy in particular, um, Prodigy was kind of the end of my film career, um, you know, because I grew up listening to Mob Deep, right? You know, you could hear the influence and everything I do, you know, and to be able to shoot Prodigy's last music video before he passed was, you know, just as a personal treasure that I could take with me. That You know, that was something amazing. Obviously, we didn't know that that was going to be the last one. But, you know, that's something that I treasure and something that I, was, you know, I felt like I had hit my plateau as a director because things were changing. Music was changing. The, the demand for, you know, lyricists or even older artists was not there around that time. That was like maybe 2016 or 17. But don't quote me on it, but you know, somewhere around that time. So, um, you know, I, I decided to pivot as I've always done uh, throughout my career. Well, let me ask you, you, you touched on something uh, really interesting Obviously, you know, using the the Travis Scott and DJ Premier example, but do you think that is hip hop? That it's literally about who you know, not 
what you know or or the talent that you have? I think um, business in general. I think a lot of people forget that this is the music business. So in business, you can maneuver without money by having relationships. You know, that's how we maneuver in life. So not, I don't want to say there's favoritism because there is favoritism, but there is a certain level of relationships and keeping good practices with people that can give you a boost along the way, right? So, you know, had Travis Scott went into that con- that meeting with Kanye without the DJ Premier phone call, maybe he would have been less receptive. I mean, how many artists are trying to get the Kanye at that time, right? But, you know, when you get that phone call and Premier is like Kanye's idol, as a producer, right? So when you get that phone call, there's going to be a certain level of um, care that you're going to take with it when, when you're stepping into that situation. So I, I do think that relationships are probably the most important thing in this industry or in any industry. Yeah, I mean, I have heard that uh, relationships, you're not the only one to tell me that like relationships are the thing that will get you to where you want to go that ultimately like there are a lot of people in the industry that are talented, are fantastic, but they suck at maintaining and building relationships. They cannot be trusted. And you see them go nowhere because people don't want to work with them. They never know what they're going to get. Yeah, correct. And, and, and that's kind of like, I, I think that's just life in general. I, I, I know the conversation is based around hip hop, but you know, generally speaking, relationships are important. You know, the ones you keep, they can be of value to you, but the ones that you damage can hurt you along the way. If you, if you burn the wrong bridges, you won't be able to cross. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you, we talk about hip-hop and say it's a sport and it's a competition, and I feel like sometimes there's this mindset of, like, because we're always competing, it's always me versus mm-hmm. you. It's it's not the the space where, like, we all work together. And I feel like that's sometimes damaging for artists when they come in is like because they come in with the mentality of me versus you, they're always got their backup. They're always got, you know, the defensive side. But ultimately you're right. You know, the the artist is the face and most of the business is behind it. And those people don't want trouble. They just want to make money at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's and that's what any kind of anyone gets into hip hop. Maybe not in the beginning. Um, you know, in the beginning it was for the love of the culture. You know, the five elements, the the graffiti, the the b boying, DJing. But ultimately, it, it's to it's to get it's a way for us to get out of our financial infrastructures, growing up in low poverty situations. And then you also have to remember that we're dealing with the majority of people, with the exception of few, are from low income situations. And you're socially programmed to be me against you at all times, right? And you can kind of see that spill over when you watch the landscape of hip-hop and the way certain artists interact, the way certain labels interact. Even the podcasters and DJs interact, you can kind of see the way that we've been trained just as human beings to operate on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we would wish that there would be more unity, Um but, you know, how do we get there is the question. Like, how do we, you know, you don't see posse cuts anymore, right? I don't remember the last time it was a posse cut. Like, multiple artists. You know what space you see that in? Like, in the Spanish market. Like, I think the Spanish market has done a great job of maintaining that aspect of just music creation. Because a lot of them are from low-income situations. No, low-income. They're from third-world countries. The Dominican Republic. I mean, Puerto Rico is a part of the United States, but it's damn near a third-world country. Right? And they've had a good they've had a good um, idea on how to get it together. So it's like, how, how do we do it as hip hop artists? And it, it it won't be done until we start breaking hip hop down into genres. I, I think you know they just have everybody in one melting pot. You know, you you got Nas competing with Little Baby for Grammy awards. You know, it's not fair to either one of them, right? I mean, Little Baby sounds like one way, and Nas sounds another way. Like, why are you putting guys in the same space? So it's almost like if you want to put in the powers that be are purposely putting people to compete against each other when you can put people in a living space where everyone can compete and everyone can be successful. Well, why do you think they do that? Why do you think they refuse to separate it and they just want it to be together? I mean, part of me is a cynic. I'm like, well, because the conflict and the conversation is good for business. I think one of the reasons why is because hip-hop didn't create anything. 
hip hop recreated everything. So like, how do you properly define what hip hop is? Right. If, if you look at, you know, early records, you know, they were basically drum loops over disco beats. Right. And you, you take a, a loop from an Earth, Wind and Fire sample and then you take a drum from James Brown, you put it together and call and have a guy rapping on it. And that's a rap song. Um, you know, so, so that's one reason why. Also, I, I also think that there's no defining sound. And this is just my opinion coming from radio. Um, you know, th there's not one sound that dominates hip hop. It's not drill. It's not West Coast. It's kind of personal preference. And I think at this point, it's niche audiences. So, you know, you follow people for a certain reason. So people probably follow you because you have like an authentic hip hop podcast. It's just going to take one bright mind to um, create the, the subgenre space. And it's really just as simple as distributing a record under a, another subgenre. That's, you know, they're not, they're not giving you the option. So it'll take someone like a TuneCore or someone, a distro kid, or even someone at Universal Music Group to say, okay, well, you know, this, uh, Little baby record sounds like a trap record. Let me categorize it under that. Well, guess what? Grandmaster Kaz is dropping a, a, a hip hop joint. It sounds like an old school. Let, let's do classic hip hop. It's just really up to the distribution companies. But, you know, it, I, as we know, um, there's no A&Rs. There's no artist development anymore. So it's kind of like people just kind of give you the co-sign and go. So I guess your, your guess is as good as mine, right? Like, how do we, you know, how, how do we rectify the situation? But it's interesting that you bring it up and you talk about it as classic hip hop. Like, I think that almost you need to look at the classic albums to define it as like what traditional hip hop is and then what everything as a subgenre is. Because like mm -hmm. the, the classic albums are classic albums because they essentially hit elements of hip hop of what We've seen it through the founding fathers and over time maintain. Even modern albums seem to maintain that feeling. But then the ones who are just like, oh, this is a new sound, but is it a classic? Probably not. Means it is probably in a different genre. Maybe it's a classic in that genre as opposed to traditional hip hop. Yeah, I mean, you know, me personally, I would, you know, categorize, you know, albums in the 90s and the 80s as classic hip hop. And then if you create something in that space then you would categorize it as that but there's so many different versions of hip-hop right you have like you have miami bass there's no longer a trap sound trap died with jeezy and ti so what are these kids creating now in atlanta like what do we call it melodic you know drill drill music in new york is like okay it's drill but there's so many different variations of that i mean these kids are literally doing like almost like dubstep with records and then you have guys like Griselda are creating it's not even boom bap so what do we call that modern hip-hop it's not traditional boom bap there's nothing that they're doing that's traditional about it. it's slower pace it's um you know it's loop samples with no drums so I, I think i think the meaning of the minds need to kind of sit down and figure out where do we go and how to create the space but i do think that hip-hop 50 has at least started the conversation right if you look at who is the top-selling artist when it comes to physical tickets? It's not Drake. It's not Lil Uzi Vert. It's 50 Cent. 50 Cent is literally killing these guys right now. And you can kind of see the way the concert structure is going. They're starting to revert back because they kind of see where the audience is. And, you know, there is a market for, for classic hip-hop artists or, or traditional hip-hop artists, quote-unquote. It's just about tapping in, tapping in and... I think companies this year figured out a way to make money off of it. So we'll just see where it goes from there. Well, why do you think 50 is outselling modern artists? Because, I mean, 50, he's obviously been in the genre for a long period of time, but he hasn't dropped a classic album in, what is it, like close to 20 years since a classic album. Like, He's been releasing a bit of music. Obviously, he, he's got stars now, and he's not even that focused on it anymore. But, like, for him to be outselling artists who are predominantly solo artists is almost insane. Well, I think one of the things that he did was embrace younger artists. He'll drop a record and put, like, a young Rowdy Rich on it. Or he'll, you know, have the, the theme song, the power, and put an artist like each. So he's been able to keep himself relevant in a way that other artists in the space haven't been able to. 
Like he, you know, he's been relevant this whole time. You know, he, he represents everything urban culture is. It's fashion, he's controversial. And, he, and at the end of the day, he still makes good music, right? So I think with him being able to do for at least be receptive in a way that other guys have shunned upon, where, you know, a, a, a 90s artists, like I, I can't even name one, but, you know, you probably wouldn't hear like Mob Deep with Fabio Ford on the record, right? But it, it would be more likely to see 50 Cent do that. Um, and and he, he's just a marketing genius. And, and I, I think you're seeing the results of that now with this uh, final lap tour. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's coming to Australia and he's got shows sold out. Um, and I saw him the first time he came out to Australia. Like, he was the first guy that got me into hip-hop. Like, Get Rich or Die Trying, I used to fall asleep to that album. Like, and and I think there is something about like the nostalgia of it, it represents a lot for a lot of people in hip hop. And he represents a lot in terms of similar to yourself in a way that like you can transition throughout your career and do multiple things. And you don't just have to be an artist. Like he's more than 50 right now. He's Curtis Jackson to the max. And he talks about it in his books, but and I've always looked at him and been like, that's, something to aspire to in the sense of being maneuverable and being flexible enough to really see the trends, see what's happening and adapt accordingly. Of course. And also recognizing the market and, and kind of seeing like what I started to show up with, where it's like, you know, the guys that are super rich and the ones pushing the buttons, you know, I mean, you, you may have a deal with Interscope Records, but who's the richest person on Interscope? Jimmy Iveen, right? The guy pushing the buttons. Um, you know, I, I've always I've always watched guys like Fifty or like Russell Simmons or Jermaine Dupri or even Diddy to a certain extent. You know, Jay Z kind of seeing like how they moved in other spaces. Master P, right? Seeing how they move in other spaces besides rap music. Rap music is the way for us to get in, but once we're in the door, we need to navigate to figure out how we're gonna triple our income and create generational change. Yeah. Do you think artists think about that, or do they just like? the lifestyle. I mean, it seems rare that artists think about the generational wealth and being able to really hold on to and build an empire. It seems like they get attracted to, you know, the lifestyle and the things. And I mean, I look at it and I'm like, damn, it would be sick to be a rapper. It would be like awesome to be on tour and live that life. But at the end of the day, all those things are fleeting. I I think artists, um, Initially, like when they first come into the game, you're just worrying about being an MC. You're worrying about creating. Um, and certain artists can break out of that habit. As we can see, the majority don't. I don't know the exact reason why. Um, I think guys just have the, um, they have unrealistic expectations on, on you know, even guys right now, like there's guys, you know, I'm 40. You know, there's guys a little older than me, you know, still still assuming that they're going to get like some sort of like major label to come in. And, um, you know, for, for me, I, I can only speak for myself. Um, I've always had realistic expectations of, of what I was going to be and what I wasn't going to be. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good lyricist. Right. You know, a lot of people consider me an elite lyricist. Um but, you know, just because I'm an elite lyricist, just because I do something well, that doesn't mean that's my path, right? And that doesn't mean that, you know, all right, there's 40 good rappers in the circle, but we don't know how to do anything else except rap. And, and I think artists struggle with that early on um, because they have this sort of, like, interpretation of that things are supposed to go that the way they want it to go. And they just have a hard time adjusting. And the ones that succeed are the ones that are able to post and pivot. Yeah. Well, I think they become stubborn in the mindset of like they've identified, they almost built it into their identity. Like I'm an MC or I'm a rapper. And that's what they tell themselves. That's what they tell everybody. And for them to be successful in other arenas almost goes against your identity because you're like starting to like, no one wants to turn around and go, Hey, it wasn't working, but that's what people should do. They should be like, Hey, I am still a rapper. I'm still an MC, but I'm also developing as this. I'm building into this. And then all of a sudden 
you've got a skill set of three, four, five, six different skills. And as you said, when you go head to head in the competition, it's like, well, you two are similar in your lyric, like lyrical skill set, but you add all these other skills, all of a sudden you come out a, a huge winner. Yeah, you know, I, I've always walked in a room and, um, you know, I looked at everybody in the room and I said, okay, this guy does this, this guy does this, this guy does this. You know, I, I need to walk in this same space and be the one that you can't replace. So let me learn all these different skill sets, what additional skill sets. So when it's time to eliminate, because we always in the elimination process, um, you know, I'm the first one that they're like, we have to keep this guy. Um, and I, I found massive success in, in, in maintaining that strategy. I don't know why other people don't see it the same way. A lot of that has to do with ego. You know, we, we deal with like a really like ego, macho, machismo type of society and community when it comes to rap music. But again, you have to kind of look at the most successful people and how do they move. And you need to not only model yourself after that, but figure out a way to develop and be better. And I think a lot of artists struggle in that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I mean, you you would have seen the difference between success and non-success. And I mean, you've spoken to so many people. Is there anything that sticks out to you in terms of like the conversations that you've had, things that you're picking up on from those people who are constantly succeeding? Um not direct conversation. I think I, I get something from everyone. Uh, you know, I, I get something from everyone, but I think, I think the best thing that I've learned just in general, just watching everyone move and, and the people that I've been able to conversate with and learn from is just, just understanding that this is a business. I, I think, you know, just people struggle with that. They just think it's rap music. Let me just make the best record I can. And all of a sudden it's going to go. And it, it just doesn't work that way at all. Like you have to understand the way that the algorithm, whatever you want to call it, operates. Also understand how you actually going to capitalize off it and be financially successful. You know, people think that you're going to upload a record is going to go. It doesn't work that way. Like what is your target audience? Who's listening to you? Learn to read the data. I think the most, the most um, thing that has helped me is learning search engine optimization. Well, search engine optimization is the reason why I got on National Geographic. Me learning coding and JavaScript, that was the thing that changed my life. Like, I wouldn't even be on Shape 45 if it wasn't for me learning that. Um, you know, I, I figured out a way to, to rank myself um, at the top of Google when it comes to nutcrackers. If, you know, I, you're in Australia, so if, if you're listening right now, it's people, it, it's like jungle juice, uh, for example. Um, and I just figured out a way, like when you search the term Nutcracker, like it would just top, pop in the top, you know, five links. And that's how National Geographic found me. Um, and that that one skill set that I learned literally changed my life and put me in the position that I'm in now. Well, let me ask you about that National Geographic documentary, because I was so interested when I was watching it and you were talking about it. Did you ever feel like it's risky? Because, I mean, you're not talking about doing something that's legal, but you are getting filmed and you are obviously having your face, you've got your name on there and you're showing them how you move. How did it, what was your thought process to accept something like that? So, you know, first I had to realize that this whole entire income stream would be over, but second, be confident enough in myself to know that I'll be able to replace it with something else. And ultimately that was radio. Right. You know, I didn't know that's what it was going to be. Um, but, you know, by the look of the draw and, and again, me not taking no for an answer, me learning certain skill sets, going back to search engine optimization, like, you know, just me taking the time to learn that shit. You know, that that little detail that I learned is the reason why they even found it. Like they were searching for jungle juice and, you know, what is a nutcracker? And they found me at the top of the list. I was rank number two behind the Nutcracker play. <laughs> so, you know, who is this guy? You know, who, who the fuck is this guy? Right? And, you know, and, and, and I, I get a, uh, I get an inbox from National Geographic on, on Facebook. And then at first you're like, you know, this, this is bullshit. And they're like, no, we're serious. Like we're coming from London. 
want to meet you, want to talk to you. This is what we have. We have this episode called Moonshine Mayhem. We have a bunch of guys in Arkansas that are some of the moonshine. We want to urbanize it a little bit. They um, they flew from London. I had one conversation with them for about a half hour. And like, all right, we, we want to uh, include you in the documentary. We're going to start filming the next day. And that was that. Damn, they weren't mucking around. They knew exactly what they wanted. Yeah, no, they, they were very... Uh, you know, if you watch National Geographic in, in general, remember they're they're not really selling to an urban audience. They're selling to an audience that lives like in Middle America and like the suburbs, and they're just interested with certain things. So they tend to have a lot of urbanization on their program. You know, so if you watch the rest of the episode, you know they're in like jukeboxes and you know random woods in Arkansas and these places. They they needed like some like like a city vibe into it, and that's kind of like why I came in. And man, that that was the best decision that I made in my life um, going to National Geographic. My mother thought I was crazy, <laughs> completely psycho. Like you're going on National Geographic. You don't have a mask. You don't have nothing. But I'm like, you know, I'm telling my mother, I'm like, and my wife, I'm like, first of all, I'm, I'm selling liquor. Right. So this is like a legal thing that I'm selling that they're saying is illegal. And then again, I'm not actually selling the alcohol on the program. I'm selling myself. I'm banking on, you know, someone seeing me and, and saying, yo, this guy is slick, the way he talks, his personality is dope, and that potentially leading uh, lead to a bigger opportunity. Yeah. It's so interesting because, like, I'm hearing your perspective. I'm hearing your the perspective of people close to you, and I agree with both of you. Like, I agree with <laughs> their perspective that, like, it is risky, that, like, yeah, you are putting your face on there, that you essentially now can't do that anymore and then on the flip side opportunity is everything and you have an opportunity to be on national geographic that will never happen again like this is your your one chance and if you say no to it well then all of a sudden you you're filled with regret because you don't know what could have happened And, and I think that was the key thing, what you said. And uh, people have asked me about it, but no one has ever said that. And that is key. Like, this will never happen again. This is one thing that I will never get an opportunity to do again. So I didn't even hesitate. It wasn't even a second thought. It was like, I'm going to do this. You know, I, I, at this time, I was really heavy in, in, the, in the film space. And I was also heavy in the modeling space as well. Um. And that's not what I want to do forever. There is some sort of bigger calling. I don't know what it is, but hopefully on the other side of National Geographic, there'll be a reward that I'm glad that I took. Yeah. Well, I think it's people ask, you know, there's a joke that's like there's a devout man who believes in God and he's drowning at sea and he's praying to God. Mm -hmm. He's saying, God, God, help me, help me. A boat comes and they're like, hey, man, do you want to come on? We'll save you. He's like, no, God will save me. So he goes. So the boat leaves. Then there's another another boat that comes. He's like, hey, we're here to save you. Do you want help? And he's like, no, no, no. God will save me. God will save me. The man ultimately dies and he's up in heaven. He's like, God, what the hell? You didn't save me. And he's like, who do you think sent the boats? Yeah. And so it's the same thing that like, hey, we look for these opportunities. We wish we get a chance. And we sometimes look at them and we're like, no, thanks. And then we're like, what is going on? And we're wondering. And, you know, you're, yeah. you showed that, like, you had that chance. You had the vision to be like, well, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for an opportunity. Yeah. You don't know how it manifests or where it fits in, but it's better to take it and see what it comes rather than the other way around. Yeah, I, I saw a very interesting uh, short documentary um, on Will Smith when he jumps over the Grand Canyon for his like 50th birthday. And the one thing that I took about it, which is very prevalent to this conversation, he had said that on the other side of fear is a reward. And I think fear blocks us all. Like fear blocks us from doing certain things, but you never know what's on the other side of that. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith, whether you're buggy jumping all over the Grand Canyon or whether you're going on National Geographic. Um, you just never know what could be on the other side of that. And we can't let our fear or our personal doubts stop our destiny. And I think that's kind of like 
you know, just what people go through on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, thank God that I've um, gained the wisdom to understand that it's important for me to face what's fearful to me, face what's scary to me. Because what could be on the other side, potentially I can garnish so much more than just being scared of it. Yeah. And we all have fears. That's the thing. You know, it's weird when people say, oh, I'm not scared of anything. And I'm like, you motherfucker, I know you're scared of something. <laughs> like, it, it may not be like, it may not be like anything that's like scary to you, but it may be something internal where you've got a demon that you're fighting. It might not be heights, but it might be like, hey, I'm scared of being in a room with these type of people. I don't feel comfortable. I'm scared I'll be found out. Like, whatever it might be, but we all have fears we have to overcome. And the successful people, the ones who overcome them. I mean, you know, even you taking the leap of faith of going on the radio, people are hearing your voice now where it's like the backlash that you think could happen from people hearing your voice. That's like an insecurity. I mean, that's what I was scared of is like, people are going to start hearing my voice, hear what I have to say and then be like, man, shut the fuck up, which doesn't not happen. But also it's like you kind of just have to get over it and accept that that could be a reality, but it's worth the risk. Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to commend you because you're like one of the best interviewers um, that that I've been on because it's so like fluent conversation. A lot of times, you know, you talk to people and it's like very like A, B, and C. So it's like predetermined, like I'm going to do me bing. Um, and that's one of the most important things with radio and podcasting. You just got to have kind of a fluid conversation and you often get the best um, material out of it. So, you know, again, you know, to anyone that's listening right now, face your fears because the reward on the other side can be so beneficial to you. But you never know unless you face it, you stand in front of it and accept that this is something you're scared of, but also accept that you can be rewarded for stepping to it directly. And you actually will be. That's what I found is like, you're just scared because you're, you're, there's that self-doubt. And that sometimes I think it's fear of success. I think mm-hmm. some people, like, we genuinely have a fear of success that if I'm successful, that means that I all of a sudden have responsibilities and I owe something to people because I've put myself out there and I've let, leveled up. And that scares a lot of people into just doing the same shit day in, day out because it's way easier to complain. And so it's also way easier to accept your current situation instead of going out there and changing it. I think that's the most important thing. You know, you are where the fuck you are because you want to be there. And, you know, this is, this is an open society. Go out there, get the bag, and do whatever you want to do. Don't limit yourself, as we said earlier in the conversation. Well, I mean, I was watching uh, Dave... Lil Dicky's TV show yesterday and I was just objectively like no one would have thought that was possible for him like no one would have been like you know he's a skinny little white dude he looks scrawny he's got this like weird personality you know it flies against almost everything that hip-hop is but he went for it and he just like you just stick to your guns you know what you bring to the table it's unique it's special and he fits in the space at the same time as we have people like Rick Ross and Griselda, as you mentioned, and it's like this whole landscape, but ultimately like no one believes you until you believe yourself. And, and that is, and that is the first uh, thing, you know, you can't sell something unless you believe in it, right? And we're all trying to sell a product um, that we can feed our families off of. And, um, you know, and, and people are going to tell you, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't fucking do that. But, you know, you, you should live on a day-to-day basis that you want to prove motherfuckers wrong, period, at all times, right? They say you can't do something, just go out and fucking do it. Stop complaining, stop looking at the phone screen, get out there and learn to figure out how to do it. And you, you actually might do it better than other people. You never know unless you try. That's what motivated me. You know, I had someone I know who say, like, who are you going to interview? Like, who's going to want to talk to you? And I'm like, I don't yeah. know, man. I don't know. But that's not the point. Obviously, at the beginning, I'm not starting with people like yourself. I'm not starting with accomplished people. But I know that. But ultimately, I'm going to start speaking to people I genuinely like and respect. And yeah. I'm just going to keep working at it. Like, 
that's the whole point of and so that doubt that doubt made me go i'm going to show you who i'm going to start talking to and i'm going to work at it and i'm not going to give up and here we are right connecting to all you from australia right yeah yeah melbourne australia oh man how's the weather out there is it good uh it's winter at the moment so it was raining yesterday so i kind of wish i was uh because I was. I wish I was in New York right now. I hear the weather's pretty nice, but um, but I'm heading over in October for a couple of weeks, so uh, we should uh, get some get some at least some decent weather. We're we're on the opposite ends of the scale just before it gets cold for you guys. So so your hot months are what January February. Yeah, uh, December Jan Feb. Although it's usually late January Feb are usually the hottest. We usually have a late mm-hmm. summer. Light so like like how hot does it get over there? Like what is the average uh, summer temperature? Um, I I know this is probably not helpful at all, but I can give you Celsius. Um, okay. but I think I think it's like it ranges from probably between twenty five to forty. I'd say twenty five to thirty five is the usual. Um, but mm-hmm. we'll hit like forty plus. So I think we'll hit a hundred for sure plus a couple of times throughout that period. But it's a really hot sun. Like it is scorching, so you got to be careful under it. Nice, nice. I actually got to get over there. Are there like are there like kangaroos everywhere? Like I see it like on uh, like on the History Channel, like kangaroos just running around. Uh, I mean, yeah, I ride a kangaroo to work every day. No, no, no I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, obviously, <laughs> inner city, inner city. Uh, you don't see that stuff very much but it's like when you get further out but like yeah there's wombats and kangaroos that jump across the road uh so you got to be careful in like a little bit further outside of the city um because they do just jump across and kangaroos are fucking strong as shit like they're so strong um and wombats they look small but they're also like boulders so you genuinely have to be careful when you're driving on those roads Really? So, so I'm pro- probably like a kangaroo would be like a deer in America, right? Yeah. Like on the outskirts, you see deer everywhere and they just dart across the road. So I don't actually live in New York. I live in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is like uh, 90 miles out of uh, New York City. It is a very mountainy area. So it, it tends to be cold, not city cold. I find it actually warmer than New York. But, you know, in Pennsylvania, you'll see the shit that you don't see in New York. In New York, you just got pigeons and squirrels. In Pennsylvania, you got deers, you got wild turkeys. I mean, you got all fucking bears. There's a fucking mountain lion running around my community right now. Yeah, that is insane to me. People think like Australia's nuts. And to be fair, it is crazy with the amount of stuff that will kill you. But like you guys genuinely have lions. Like a mountain lion is a thing. Yeah. And yeah, you just said like my community has a mountain lion. I've never said a sentence like that where, like, my community is is scared of a bear or a mountain lion, you know, attacking people. Yeah, we, we got uh, mountain lions and we have a shitload of black bears. Have you ever seen a black bear? A few black bears. I'll I tell you a, a story. I uh, so, so when I first bought my in Pennsylvania, I moved my mom. Um, I moved her from New York to Pennsylvania. Me and her were going to the garbage to uh, throw out, you know, whatever trash that we had. And we turned the corner of my house and there is a huge black bear and he got on his two feet and he must have been like 10 feet tall at that moment. And me and my mom, like we're from the Bronx. So like I said, the Bronx is literally fucking pigeons and squirrels. That's it. Like you don't (laughs) see shit. You don't see fish. You don't see nothing. And me and my mom was looking up at this nigga. And then, like, he, you know, it was weird because, like, he got up and then he, he got down and he went into the corner and he started pouting like a dog. The black bear. Because he was just really just trying to get whatever food he could find into the garbage can. And then he skirted off into the woods. And I said, you know what? I immediately have to put a light on the side of my house. I had no <laughs> I had no light at that moment. I didn't want to sense the lights. I'm like, no, it's crazy. What was the feeling like of coming face to face with a black bear for the first time? Man, I couldn't even think about it. There was nothing to think about because it's like we literally turned the corner where we had our trash at 
and he was there like destroying the garbage. So I almost have one of the moments like if I don't move, he won't see me. You know, like like you know, because he stood up and it's like holy shit, you know, <laughs> this animal will fling you like you know if he wanted to. Um, but like I said, like the, the mannerisms was weird. It was almost like a dog. I can't explain it. Um, and, and I've seen a few black bears like living in Pennsylvania. They kind of they kind of don't you know, leave them alone. They'll just go about their business. You know, you're not gonna stop and take a picture with them. You're not gonna be like this with a selfie with a black bear. Like you're like, oh shit, let me get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like my first reaction as I was imagining myself in your position. I'd be like, oh fuck. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, it would be, like, I think at that moment you realize how not invincible you are as a person, where you come face-to-face with literally a killing machine like that. Well, well, not only invincible, but you you also start to understand that you're not in control of any of this shit, right? And and that leads back to the hip-hop combo because it's like you're just not in control of your destiny. You're not in control... Of day to day, like you can step outside and get hit by a fucking truck. I mean, you know, you can only control whatever you can. So the object is to make the best of it and be skillful enough in anything that you can control and just let destiny take its course. Well, I think there's a saying that I've been saying to people close around me is control the controllables and whatever Mm. else happens, you have to adapt to because, like, and you can only worry about what's in your control. And I think in a certain way, like I personally don't really watch news or anything like that because I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Like we're talking about people who who are worlds away from me and I can only contribute what I can contribute and i got to focus on what makes me better and what continues to improve me. I think some people are so, we talk about fear, but they're scared of like all these big, broker decisions that they don't do anything because they're like the world is going to end but it's like that's just stopping you from being a contributor and finding your purpose yeah yeah that that, that that's super important i mean again you know you, you can just be the pe- best person that you can be um you can't stop anything that's happening you know you know life life is changing rapidly um obviously covid kicked their ass you know we're, we're, we're potentially on on the brink of a third world war Right. And, um, you know, if you look at uh, humanity as a total, um, you know, these are the years that all these things start happening. Right. I, I think the first world war was in 1918. The second world was in the 1940s. Right. And we're kind of around that time where shit starts happening. You know, the Spanish flu was, was a big thing. I don't know what year that was, but, you know, in the beginning of the century, this is kind of like where, where shit starts to happen. And then in the latter part of the years, that's where they figure out how to calm it down. Um, and, you know, the development of technology, the development of rapid societies and new communities and stuff. We just got to remain vigilant and and just, you know, we, we got to try to take care of each other. I don't think we're doing a good job of that right now. Yeah, I think we're too quick to point at your differences and mine. Like, they're too quick to be like, hey, you're different to me because of X, Y, Z, and I'm different to you because of X, Y, Z. And so you have this niche, really small community, but that is the wrong way to go because we're just creating division across everybody. Like, you don't want Mm -hmm. a thousand communities of, like, five people who are like, well, I only trust these five people and I can't communicate with these people because they disagree or they look a certain way or whatever it is. Like, I think we've almost gone too far. We need to go back to, like, hey, how do we actually work together and communicate effectively? Yeah, well, well one, one of the reasons is social media. You know, I talk about this with my wife all the time. Social media has made us antisocial. You know, you know, our generation is the last generation of social people. When you look at our kids, I mean, these guys are super antisocial. You would think that they would be, um, you know, because of TikTok, but they, they're, used, they're used to meeting people like this. They have no personal interaction with people. So this is a safe space, right? Where it's like, if you don't like something I say, or I don't like something you say, you just shut it off, right? In person, it's a lot different. And I think the, the younger society, the younger generation doesn't know how to deal with it because they've been trained to operate a certain way, right? So it's like, you know, how do we find like a healthy balance of, okay, you know, 
continue with the digital age, but we need some sort of personal interactions. Well, I think the one thing they haven't learned is how to listen. You know, people have asked me what makes, what helps me do what I do. And you said, you know, I'm very thankful for the compliment of like, this is a a flowing conversation. It's fluid. The only thing that I do is I just listen to you. That is it. Like I'm genuinely interested. I'm listening. There's no, like, I'm not looking for a reason to disagree. And if you listen, you're going to find more commonality and you're going to be able to have a conversation. But if you're looking for, if you can't listen, it's never going to work. Correct. You know, but, but how does a generation listen when they, when they have so much information, you know, just on this device that I'm talking to you on? So they think they know everything. They have access to all the information. And, and that kind of, you know, damages their personality in a sense. You know, I, I have, um, I've raised five kids, right? And they, they're all different. Um, in a way, but the one common ground is that they feel like they know every fucking thing because they're on the fucking phone all day. So they have access to all the information. They can tell you an answer quicker than I could tell you when I was their age. Because we actually had to go get a book or like wait to go to school to get the answer. They just pull the shit up. These fucking kids are writing essays on chat, GPT, and all types of shit. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just a different time and we just got to all learn to adjust. Um, but but I think, you know, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 40. Um, and I think, you know, my generation is the last generation of personal interaction, right? It's like, you know, you didn't have, you know, you had beepers back in the day. You know, you had a cell phone, you know, you didn't, you didn't have this where we could video conference literally on other sides of the world, right? So, like, how do you tell a generation to operate when they can do this at the palm of their hands all the time? This is all they know. It's like a, a very difficult space to be in. Yeah. Well, I'm 29. So, like, I started life without this. And so, as mm-hmm. I've gotten older, it, like, started happening in high school and then, obviously, with phones and then, you know, Zoom with work but and, and then being able to do this stuff. But I think the key differentiator is a fact doesn't mean you understand. Like, Correct. Okay, so you and I can Google it and, and okay, I've got an answer. But that actually mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything because there's no context, there's no lesson applied. So, like, I feel like the real thing that they're missing out on is, okay, I write an essay with ChatGPT, but I didn't learn mm-hmm. anything. Like, I just did Correct. it. And so, like, I think ultimately, like, when it comes to, like, your generation and my generation, it's like, okay, the true way to learn is by asking questions and by talking. Like, it's so simple, but, like, that's the real way to learn is to listen to people who are having a conversation. That's why podcasts are so big because it's literally just a few people talking and you get to hear the context of what they're talking about and you don't have to agree, whatever, but Mm -hmm. most people are just learning through, through that or through videos. But I think long form is, is really big. Although we see like, you know, you we see reels and all that kind of stuff, TikTok. But I think long form always has a place. Yeah, long lo- form content. I, I had someone ask me. Um, you know, they they were complaining about attention spans, and you know they, they were calling in like, oh, you know, there's no attention spans, and I'm like, people don't have attention spans for non information. If you're not giving anybody any information, they're just going to listen to you for a minute because you ain't talking about shit. But people are also able to watch Joe Rogan for four hours or drink chance for four hours. They even listen to us talk for an hour and a half because there's some sort of informative aspect behind it. Right? So information is super key. It's super superb. And I think we also have to figure out how to get back to teaching people stuff. And, you know, g- giving something someone of value instead of giving something that's just valuable to them right now. Like, what can you take from my interaction with you that can impact your life or you can grow and learn from, not just having a good time at this moment? And I think that is a, the difference between my generation. I mean, you're 29, so you was born, what, 94? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you were born in 94, so you're, like, in the middle. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, like, in the middle. Like, when you were 10, there were sidekicks out. You know, they, you know, there, there wasn't like a super advanced computer. Like people, I think at that time people were still going through like AOL dial up. 
at that time, right? So, yeah. you know, you know, you know, how do we merge the generations and make it make sense for everyone? I think it starts at school, though, because we're in this model of the right answer is what is acceptable, but not we're, we're taught we're not taught how to think. That's what really I find frustrating is like, uh, like if we taught philosophy at school, I wonder what the difference would be of like philosophy is just the practice of how do you think, how do you get to the answers you get to, how do you question effectively? And as I've gotten older, I've started to really like get into that side of things. But I think we don't actually contemplate of like, okay, that's the right answer, but how do we get there? How did, yeah. how does, how is that the right answer rather than like, oh, congratulations, you got the right one, tick, move on. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, how do you find like the, uh, like the school curriculum and like Australian culture? Is it like similar to America? Is it? It's, it's similar. I mean, obviously I haven't been to school for a long time, so I can only talk about mm-hmm. my own experience. Um, mm-hmm. But I found the, the most valuable classes personally the one where like in English you talk about a book and the ideas in the book and like, okay, this is what you think about it, but why do you think that? Or we talk about history and I loved history and it's like, hey, these are the events. This is what some person says about it. This is what someone else says about it. What do you think about it and why? And like, what do you think the landscape was? And it's like forcing yourself to critically evaluate your own thinking so that you can then explain it to somebody else those were always the most valuables but like i was never i was okay at maths i just never liked it that much i stopped doing science in year 10 it was just like not pass um but those other ones the humanities that was for me the most valuable and i did legal studies i ended up going to law school and and doing all that kind of stuff but those were the ones that really stuck with me of like hey why do you think the way you do? Like information you can take long term. Yeah. Like how do you evaluate it? Like literally how do you read a book and what do you think about it? And why do you think that? And prove it. I, th- I think the, the American curriculum, I, I went to school in the uh, early 90s, you know, probably uh, late 80s. Started school maybe 89. Um, and I think, I think the American curriculum was, it kind of felt a little bit more like they were trying to rewrite history or just, you know, tell you what they wanted you to know. That's a, that's a disservice to, um, to teaching. Right. Um, so, you know, just like on topic. So, you know, I had, I recently found out that the person that built the empire state building, you know, at one time was the biggest building in the world also built a facility that created the atomic bomb. Oh, really? I did not know that. His, his last name is Dewpoint. It's, uh, it's D-U space point. So he, he's an architect. Well, he wasn't an architect. He was a person that created mass weapons. Um, and then the government attacked him. And then he he kind of went into engineering and he owned General Motors for a while. Um, and, and he was in a race with Walter Chrysler, who created the Chrysler building. Obviously, owns Dodge, owns Chrysler. And they were in a battle to create two big buildings. They created the Chrysler building. And then he just went crazy and created the Empire State Building. And when America decided to get into World War II, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, FDR, uh, Roosevelt, he went and recruited DuPont to create the facility that created the atomic bomb. So, my, so, the, so you know, the, the irony of it is like why they don't teach us this from the beginning. You know, he teaches that the Empire State Building is such a... Is such a um, a, a, a standard of beauty and an and American culture and you know this is the thing we need to look forward to but why don't you teach us that the same person that built that also built something to destroy multiple communities and multiple lives and kill like damn near 3 million people I, I think that would be proper education if they laid that out for us in the beginning well I think you and I both know the reason to that and that's because the truth is ugly and it is easier to teach someone with no flaws than someone who's flawed. And Correct. I th- and, and, I mean, I look at every historical figure. We don't talk about their flawed characters. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they all did fucked up shit. 
but that's the whole point, I guess, is like they're all humans. And I think it's almost demotivating to people. They're looking at all these historical figures who have no flaws, quote unquote, but they did and we never talk about it. So it makes you feel like shit because you're like, well, why do I feel like I do all these bad things or I've made these mistakes compared to these amazing people and I can never stack up? Yeah, man. You know, if, if we if we painted the whole picture to our kids from the beginning, I think the world would be a much different place in general. Um, you know, they, they kind of just tell you what they think you should know instead of telling you what you need to know. And and this is the problem with society, you know, across the entire world, right? So, you know, if we want to correct certain situations, it starts with the kids, but it also starts with not doing a disservice to them by misfeeding them information. Yeah. Well, it's like the set, you know, you think your parents are flawless as kids. And then the older you get, you yeah. start to see them as people. And you're like, damn, they're, they're just people trying to make it work. Like they just, they had no idea. Like we have no idea and they're just doing their best. Yeah. And that, and that's just kind of like the way wor- the world of society works. Right. So yeah. Got to learn to adjust. Well, man. We've literally talked about everything under the sun today, and I feel like we could just talk forever, honestly, like it just flowed so seamlessly. But I only have one more question for you. It's the hardest question that I ask on the show, the only question that I plan on the show. But if you had to recommend one album that everybody should listen to at least once to get an appreciation of, can be any genre of music, cannot be your own music, what would it be? Illmatic. I mean, I mean, Illmatic is the, uh, the not only is it the greatest hip hop album, it is the description of urban culture from a sixteen-year-old. You know, in all this conversation that we're having about misinformation and intelligence, just phantom that. Like, the greatest rap album of all time was written by a sixteen-year-old. It was descriptive. It was storytelling it was just an amazing work of art and poetry and production and man if, if, you know if, if I could tell people to take one album I, I would tell them to take Illmatic because Illmatic was just the perfect definition of who we are as people especially in the urban society and I think it properly tells the right tale well I agree. One of the greatest albums ever made and iconic. And I mean, Nas is having a resurgence speaking of an artist who's been able to do it along throughout their whole career. But his projects these days, I listen to and I'm like, holy shit. Like they Mm -hmm. are genuinely Mm -hmm. amazing to listen to. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a great example of an artist who found his voice, kind of went off, did his thing and came back and is just like, yeah, it's good. I mean, his album last, the King Disease trilogy is just unbelievable. Killing it. And I'm looking forward. I hope we're going to get the Nas and DJ Premier album at some time. At yeah. some point. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe that happening. That would be amazing. And speaking of amazing, obviously the one and only, the infamous Amadeus. Uh, for anyone who hasn't checked him out, please make sure you do this music that's coming out there is his radio show man you're literally doing it all but it's been a pleasure for me to speak to someone who's so accomplished and and literally been doing it uh, like a dream come true for for a lot of people if they could have the career mm-hmm. you've been having but man is there anything you wanted to plug anything you wanted to shout out man well um my next album is coming to 10 tape um i know a lot of um a lot of people have been a little disappointed because i've been doing more production. So like Infamous Life and the Soul with a Rock Kim Sun Tamel. That that's just, you know, me producing. But there there is a rap album coming for me uh this year. It's called the Ten Tape. It'll be available um October twenty seventh. I have uh Soul for Real, the group that's saying Candy Rain on it. I have uh Mom Thug Rampage for Flip Mode. Like I have a lot of content on there and I hope all uh, people are gonna be receptive to my album. And then, of course, you know, I tap in with the Punchline Academy, my freestyle cipher, Shade 45 every single Thursday, new EST for the new hip-hop picks, 3 p.m. EST for the throwback classics. And thanks to you for having me on the podcast, and I look forward to having some more conversation. Me too, man. And, uh, yeah, I think this is the first of many, and as I said, it was a genuine pleasure. I can't wait. And hopefully you get to come out to Australia sometime soon. 
Yeah, we gotta pull up to we gotta go to Australia so we can see the kangaroos. Okay, gotta go. Yeah, I'm telling my wife. We're yeah, the kangaroos. Be careful, you might never go back once you start seeing the kangaroos. Yeah. They're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's super dope, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. Please like and subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for upcoming podcast news. Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon under hip hop hustle for exclusive content and to help support the show. Bye for now.